0: hey there you're listening to radio never apart and i will be your host for this episode my name is leticia trandafir and i'm the music director at never apart but today we won't be talking about music we'll be talking about bread my guest for this episode is lexi smith a baker and artist based in queens new york She runs a community-based art project called Bread on Earth, which explores bread's potential as a social, political, economic, and ecological barometer. As the COVID-19 crisis has placed many of us in confinement, a lot of people have taken up bread-making at home, whether it's to feed their family or try a new hobby. Lexi has a really fascinating perspective on this that I invite you to discover in today's episode.
1: I wanted to maybe start off with just uh, getting to know a little bit more about you and how you got to Bread and some of your path that led you there.
2: Yeah, I feel like it's Bread Got to Me. I began baking when I was around 15, so pretty young for someone who didn't have any kind of familial connection to it. You know, I wasn't like baking with matriarchs in my family. Nobody was doing that. The time was not really spent shared in the kitchen. It really was born out of a desire to know what I was putting in my body. I was definitely in a seeking moment. I was a pretty unhappy teenager, like many. And I think that I was engaging in like an emotional baking akin to what a lot of people are feeling right now. Yeah. Um, back right. then, before I knew what the, what the terms were. But it was really a form of therapy. And I did that for many years. I was kind of always in the kitchen. I was cooking a lot as well. And it was always just sort of an accessory to the rest of my life. You know, I never thought of it as my creative outlet. It was just... It felt very compulsive. And I sort of saw it that way all through college, even though I was spending more and more time baking, and then reading recipes and writing recipes. I was spending hours reading recipes and I wouldn't use any of them. I would just like wing it and write my own. I never used recipes and it was why it took me a long time to start making things that tasted good. And then when I did make things that tasted good, like there was no way to replicate them. I don't think I realized it until actually pretty recently that that was such a huge part of my relationship with making food. It was really about inserting my own voice into the instructions and it also allowed me to make things in a way that felt like mine and to not really rely on rules that other people had ordained and i never understood why there was all this anxiety around baking because i was like no you just do whatever you want (laughs) Um, it doesn't really work that way you know it is like a sort of give and take between alchemy and science and intuition and emotion. But So I studied art and writing in college, graduated, obviously couldn't get a job making any money doing those things. So I started cooking in restaurants. First I moved to a farm in Hawaii. I wanted to get into agriculture. I wanted to work there, learn the land, and then come back to New York and work in urban agriculture got a little off track didn't end up moving back to new york for about 3 years ended up in texas where i started cooking and baking professionally kind of lied my way into a kitchen i was always a really obsessive baker but i really did not have much experience with bread the bread that i was making at home was like really bad and i mean <laughs> i it was I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like making it up, and I was reading a lot online, but I had no mentors. Like no one was telling me what to do or what not to do, and I was just like going blind. But I somehow got a job as an overnight bread baker in a French restaurant that was opening up. And I mean, it was a really rough couple of months, to put it lightly. But I (laughs) somehow got through it and did not get fired. And ended up transferring to the day shift where I became one of the pastry chefs and continued baking, but less bread. It was really a lot of pastry. And then I did that for two years, got really burnt out and moved back to New York and was like, I'm done with the kitchen world. I'm not working in food anymore. The lifestyle is just so depleting. It wasn't like intellectually stimulating. I was stuck really in a pretty narrow part of the food world which is not the way the whole food world is but I had only seen this kind of pocket of it and I was just done you know the hierarchy of the kitchen all the sort of stereotypes that you hear I was like my treat my body poorly I wasn't sleeping it was just like a really rough game that I didn't want to be a part of so I got back into like some design work and artwork and writing and then I you know maybe a year later just through a course of events got sucked back into kitchens i really missed it and i was like i'll just bake part time because you know it feels like it's something that i need and it ended up being full time it ended up being a really amazing opportunity that allowed me to be very creative and i had a really special and important connection with the chef who became one of my closest friends and he kind of let me do what i wanted and trusted me and he sort of did the same on his end, and people liked it. And it really kind of opened up a lot of avenues for me to explore baking in a way that was maybe a little less traditional and be able to do that in a more traditional food scape, which was like the restaurant industry in downtown New York.
1: Was this um, El, s- El Rey? Was that El mm-hmm. Rey? Yeah, oh, that okay.
2: was at El Rey. L. Ray was problematic for a few reasons. And he and I and everybody eventually left. It was sort of this beautiful fleeting golden age of experimentation. And then I left and I ended up working with him again on another project or two as his pastry person. And really just realized that I did not want to be doing pastry. The way he got me into the last project was like, I promise you can make bread. And it was the only thing that I wanted to do I got in, it was not really an option to make bread in that setting and I finally it was like, you know, I am spending all of my time making desserts for people and that's not what I care about. And I wasn't sure that I was gonna like devote my life to bread. I mean I'm still not, but I knew that making pies and cakes in a basement was not Mm
1: -hmm. the end
2: of the line for me. So I ended up leaving that job about Maybe three years ago now. And since then, I think it was just sort of fight or flight. I managed to wiggle my way into enough kind of like abstract food atmospheres that allowed me to, you know, install food for events or write about food, write recipes, kind of use the perspective that I had accumulated around baking to support myself. And eventually it was really a realization that like, I couldn't choose between art, whatever that means and Mm -hmm. food. I had to somehow find a middle ground bridging the two. And it wasn't a conscious choice. It was just that bread is what allowed me to do that. So bread is where I've stayed and it's become a really sort of endlessly generous fount for Exploring dialogues that are endlessly diverse. And it began because somebody asked me to be part of a, like a group show, a little gallery show and didn't specify what they wanted from me. And at the time I was doing a lot of graphic stuff and some illustration and I made 12 loaves of sourdough bread and chopped them into pieces and built towers out of them. On a table in the gallery space and then waited for people to interact with them. And it changed everything because like the reaction to that piece, if we can call it that, was so much more extreme and compelling than anything I'd experienced before. And it like shocked me and also was suddenly so obvious that this item would be able to kind of reach almost anybody that you put it in front of. And that really set me off on a further exploration that has yet to cease. It's taken many forms and it continues to take many forms. And that's kind of the point. Like it does never have to stay as one thing. I never tire of it. There's definitely periods where I focus more on an aesthetic exploration of it. And then it really also allows me to do research and education from a more historical perspective or political perspective. I write about it. And it's really just, it comes from me being unable to kind of place myself firmly into one category ever, which I probably need to do more of. But studying this item allows me to kind of just move through a wide array of disciplines and circles at my will. We'll see how long I can keep it up. But that's sort of how we got here. I was focused on teaching for the next sort of this period. And then teaching kind of took a backseat to a digital relationship with viewers. And, you know, I don't want to teach to viewers i want to sort of like Mm -hmm. it's a little bit too personal and human and tactile a medium that's so deeply ingrained in a physical and emotional experience to really pour as much energy into online education
1: yeah it seems kind of the, the medium You lose a lot of what's so magical about the, not only, I think the material, you know, the tactile and sensual aspects of brand making, but also the educational side, I think. I feel like a lot of teachers and, and people who are like in that position are kind of like faced with this dilemma of like, how do we do this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really, really admire anybody who's sort of renegotiating their relationship to students and you know pedagogy in general and pursuing it as intensely in this context as they would otherwise i feel like it opens up a lot of opportunity for different mechanisms for guiding and sharing experience but it's definitely a new set of variables not sort of a transference of the old ones and I like that i'm 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 interested in sort of what it will breed, but I'm like really not interested in you know online tutorial series. I think that there are so many of them, and they're about everything and they're fantastic and you know the best thing that we could all be doing in this stage is learning. but there really is something about bread where at least the sort of the teaching that I was doing and was planning on continuing is really about like this tightly woven and also very, very loose meandering tributary like conversational element that comes from making bread with other people and sharing bread with other people. And the, things that come out of sharing that experience, the conversations that come out of sharing that experience, because that's really what is so compelling about the items. You walk into a room and you hand someone a loaf of bread or you make bread with them. And the dialogues that open up from that interaction are totally unpredictable and surprising in so many amazing ways. Having that conversation be instructional and one-sided is just a really different conversation.
1: That's a really interesting aspect of this whole kind of new way of doing teaching and and all that. And I'm currently taking this online gardening and permaculture class with this school called Wild Abundance. And something that they said that was interesting was usually this would be like, you know, you come to the farm and you do all the stuff, but then you see it, you know, done by a sort of mentor. But now the interesting thing is that they will show you on their farm and you have to reproduce it in an environment that's so different in that there's gonna be a learning process that's very distinct and very potentially rich in other kinds of teachings. So Yeah,
2: I mean there's very much this idea that it in a strange way accessibility to education is expanded by our inaccessibility to each other. Yeah. And you know, especially with bread, so much of it is about your individual circumstance. You know, the the way that recipes are written really, really, really needs to focus on the extensibility of the process in that your experience is going to be different than my experience, regardless of us all using the same instruction. So in that way, it's really kind of, I mean, that's the way that I've always really written recipes because Mm -hmm. there's so much reliance on a, a guiding voice to sort of inform your movements. And this does really ensure that everybody's learning the activity, learning the process, having the experience on their own terms. So I think that that's really what so much of this has been about for anybody who's trying to educate and assist throughout this period is putting power back into the hands of the individual. So our inability to be there directing someone else's hands, you know, face to face really kind of ensures that they're going to have to figure it out on their own.
1: Mm -hmm. And
2: I think that that is what's happening. I mean, I've had a number of people in my life who I've tried to get to care about this stuff for years and they're <laughs> sending me the most beautiful photographs of bread that they're making in their homes because they are doing it themselves over and over and over and over again. And that's a really kind of remarkable side effect
1: mm-hmm. of
2: our forest separation, which is that we are maybe getting better and making things for ourselves because we realize how reliant we've been on others giving them to us.
1: Yeah. There's something that I really, on the bread on earth website, it's kind of like bread is both a metaphor, but also like a super vital physical, real object that is kind of like a barometer of, you know, so many things, political, social, ecological. So I wanted to kind of maybe hear more about that from your perspective of what this represents you know, the local bread represents. And yes, it has this metaphorical historical thing, but now more than ever, it's like a really important physical thing.
2: Yeah. I think that we can finally, not that it should have taken this long, but sort of confirm that we can't go back to the narrative that bread doesn't matter. You can sort of Hone in on it and see these spikes and trends and changes in our access to our own power and in our access to resources and in our access to good resources and in the um, contamination of our resources, be those intellectual, emotional, spiritual, or physical by larger authorities at hand. And the fact that there is a Return to it, I think, really demonstrates as it has in the past our hyper awareness that we are either on the brink of or in the middle of no longer having that power close to us and within our domain. There's obviously a huge uptick in bread making right now, which has been like really incredible to see just because I think that it's never going to be a bad thing that there are more people making bread. But really, it's that to me, it's this idea that the goal is not to have as much bread on the planet as possible. The goal is to have people deeply engaged in their own process and their own experience. And right now, bread making definitely serves as a comfort and a salve. And it allows you to be present and focused and mindful, but it's also not a frivolous form of production. You know, you're actually able to produce something that is sustaining and propagates itself. You know, Mm -hmm. when we're dealing with sourdough, especially when I talk about bread, it usually is if we're being specific, I'm referencing like the original form of bread before it was kind of brought into any sort of commercial or industrial context. Mm -hmm. And that means no reliance on commercial yeast. It means ideally made with flour that will nourish the body as opposed to deplete the body. But either way, it's a process that takes time and when made as it was takes human hands. So I think that it represents something that is comforting in that you can allow yourself to focus on making an item that you No will allow you to continue on. But it is also kind of like a rally cry. There's really a return to it that happens subconsciously as a last straw. You know, you look at when bread riots break out in unstable and precarious environments. And it's usually like when that is the moment where the people will take it no longer. And... I think it has to do with an idea that this is a food item that we have been making. It's not a crop. Mm-hmm. Bread is not yeah. something that grows in the ground. It requires human involvement and interaction it is a product of us and we've been making it for, you know, 14,000 years. So when that thing is taken out of our control, I think that there is really an ancestral alarm bell that goes off in us that says, no, we need to reclaim this because mm-hmm. if we lose this, we can lose everything. It feels a little different than stir fries and roast sweet potatoes, <laughs> yeah. which are both amazing. But like there's something about a loaf of bread. I mean, if something can be that simple and also nearly impossible for us to wrap our heads around. hmm and have such an extremely large space between the form that it starts out as and the form that it ends as. I think it's human nature to be struck by that and to want to protect it and to want to keep it for ourselves. And when we are faced with scarcity, whether it's something that is imposed on us or that we are... Feeling as a result of a circumstance beyond anybody's control, it is natural to return to, in a very urgent way, a thing that encapsulates all of these different forms of comfort and that we feel entitled to as human beings because we've always had it. So I think we're seeing a lot of that now. And I think that it's a kind of incredible thing to witness just selfishly as someone who has been trying to say that bread's not the bad guy for a little while. Right. You know, okay. and there are a lot of people who have been saying that, but it's really remarkable to witness its prevalence as an idea and now as like this sort of trend amidst such a globally tumultuous time because this the barometer aspect of it if it hadn't changed now, you know, if bread had sort of just like stayed stable, I kind of would have quit Mm -hmm. because this is the time when we are going to be witnessing an extreme reaction in anything that is dependent on an external context Mm -hmm. and bread's going crazy.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I was just listening to a podcast from CBC here in Canada, CBC ideas, and they were kind of conversation about bread. Sort of the rise and fall of bread and whatnot and one of the things that kind of stuck with me was that like historians kind of say that the first brick shapes kind of not i don't know if inspired is the right word but kind of came from sort of bread making and bread shapes and kind of again speaks to this like civilizing force of bread and how that's kind of like a symbol of like it's a shift. This is something else now. It's not like a hunter-gatherer society anymore. This is like we're starting something else.
2: Whole cities were based around bakeries. You know, it was it was a form of currency. Once it entered into a civilized society, the society became civilized. It was something that was so extreme in its departure from what everybody experienced that it ended up informing all of these structures infrastructures it entered into language in a way that is surprising and unlike other food items it became a spiritual a ritualistic part of our lives and it's kind of easiest to see what an effect it had on human beings, when we look back at when things were invented, you know, like it's rare that we invent things anymore. Yeah. It's like we had the internet and other than that, it's like a lot of recycling of the same ideas in different formats. There's like a better spoon and, you know, a different kind of car. But when we were making stuff for the first time, like cities, like bricks, like, I mean, bread was an... Informed a lot of that, which is really pretty remarkable.
1: Yeah, that whole history of language, like dough, is like means money. So you know, it's yeah. Like, it's, it's
2: yeah. Still oh. <laughs> I mean, that's like the the easiest way. It's like, all right, let's just spend the next three hours talking about all the different things that bread means literally. Yeah, you know, it's like, and then we just start with English and then go on forever if we expand it, but like companion mm-hmm. means with bread and bread means both life and the thing that we earn to continue to live our life it's really kind of amazing that like livelihood and life could be represented by the same thing um yes. because they're not the same thing one needs the other but they're kind of in some ways like conflicting or opposing ideas we don't even really recognize the frequency with which we reference an item that feels almost trivial in its simplicity you know you start having you want to have a serious conversation about bread and it like feels goofy it's kind of a curious idea it's like if you wanted to have a serious conversation about water that wouldn't Mm -hmm. seem goofy yeah yeah or salt. I think that the idea of bread in a modern age after the industrialization of bread has become such a domestic concept because outside of a domestic space, it's been entirely estranged from us. It's just like something that you buy at the store, and mm-hmm. other than that, it's something that you make at home, like maybe to feed yourself, but it's usually it's like an activity yeah. as opposed to a, a necessity, and you know. Water is never an activity. It's a necessity. We need Mm -hmm. to live. We don't need bread to live, but bread represents life. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting sort of result of our estrangement from an item and its evolution into a commodity that we can kind of laugh about it or shrug it off or actually think that we can get by without it, Mm -hmm. which I think that we can all sort of confirm is not the case (laughs) After we've seen everyone who's been gluten-free for the last 10 years uh, (laughs) learn how to make sourdough.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to also talk about your recent project of dehydrating sourdough and kind of sending it. What was like, I guess it's kind of all of these aspects of this crisis, but how did that pan out? And what was the response to that?
2: The response was really extreme. I've sent out over 1,200 sourdough starters. Wow. And I was not anticipating that. And then when I kind of stopped to think about why the reaction was so dramatic, it made sense to me because of everything I just said to you. I just didn't realize when I had sort of put the offer out there, it was really right in the beginning of the Shelter in place orders and the cities weren't really shut down at the time. At least in the States, people were still really moving around, pretty mobile. It was the last day that I was in Queens and I realized that there were shortages kind of already taking place in, through panic buying and that this was going to be a perfect time to really reinforce how vital it was for us to not be reliant on large scale industrial sources to feed ourselves so i offered sourdough for those reasons and also because i was compelled in amidst a moment of uncertainty to share the one thing that i had
1: mm-hmm.
2: especially if i wasn't going to be able to share it in another way i don't want to feed Thousands of people with bread that I make, like I'm not interested in in baking in that capacity. I'm really interested in like teaching you how to bake for yourself. And you know, you can do whatever you want with that skill as opposed to one loaf, teach mm-hmm. a man to fish, et cetera. So yeah, I put out the offer for dehydrated sourdough and had like 500 responses within 24 hours mm-hmm. and then another 500 within the next week and a half. And it was incredibly moving and overwhelming but up until like a week ago it was like a full-time job for you know two months and I had help from people all over the place and the response was just really personal really deeply deeply personal to these people and it was coming from many different angles it was a lot of people who had been laid off or furloughed and were concerned about being able to feed their families or themselves. And then it was a lot of people who were looking for something to do to occupy their time. And I think that those are the, like two of the not opposing, but pretty diverse sides of the way that people relate to this item. You know, sometimes it's out of necessity and sometimes it's out of comfort or it's for comfort. And I received a lot of stories and people are letting me know now what the story continues to be. They're sharing it and I've asked people to let me know where they share it to because I'm going to map all of it and kind of try and track its spread. It seemed important at a moment when everyone was talking about the spreading of nefarious spores to really highlight this idea that we can spread things. We're really good at spreading things amongst ourselves. (laughs) And I think that we've seen in the last two months, so many people trying to share the uplifting and encouraging parts of their experience. And this was definitely a pretty literal version of that. And it really was surprising, I think, to see people's interest in being part of this larger lineage. Because I was like, here are instructions for you to make your own. You live in India. This is going to take a really long time to get to you. It might never get to you at all. Yeah. Here are instructions to make your own. You're in Malaysia, Croatia. And people wanted mine. Because yeah. they just, they wanted someone else's. They wanted to be part of this larger link and web. Even though I think it's kind of interesting because as soon as the culture makes it to you and you feed it two or three times in your environment, it's not, it's yours. You know, it's like biologically not the same as mine. It's really just sort of like a kickstart, but that doesn't really matter. You know, yeah. it's like there really is a, emotional drive that I think is very human right now to be connected to something that is spreading, making its way around the world, literally. And you can continue to nourish it and maintain it in your own home and give it out yourself. Nourish and provide for others in that way. And it will last for as long as you're able to take care of it.
1: There's something, yeah, about that kind of connectivity that I think is really special. And speaking of connectivity, I was kind of wondering how your experience has been connecting to the other people who make bread happen, like the people who grow the wheat, or what are the other people involved and what is your relationship to them? and How does that form through a network and how does that work for you?
2: There is, as you would imagine, a lot of conversation and action and excitement within the grain community and by grain community really it's like tiny farmers mid-sized farmers but like nothing outside of that the grain community and the industrial grain community are very very different things so it's all of these people who have been essentially preparing for this forever you know none of these smaller mills are running out of flour. In fact, this item was like barely considered at all. And now they like can't keep up with demand, but it's because they only have 2 people working at the mill. There's a lot of sharing of information happening within that community. My relationship to it is kind of funny because I'm growing an experimental wheat plot up here right now. But I mean, it's like 3 months old and teeny tiny. And I'm by no means a wheat farmer, but I'm a wannabe wheat farmer and a fangirl. And you know, I like go to the wheat conferences, the grain conferences. And my my relationship to it is pretty funny. Like I always show up and I'm like, hide, I wanna like hide and I'm like, don't ask me any questions. Like I don't really belong here. I'm not a farmer. Like I don't even bake in like any sort of large scale, large capacity right now or any capacity at all. Really, it's like art you know it's like i teach but you know not like that and and every time i go and i talk to people and i you know develop these relationships i'm just reminded that all of these things all sides of the conversation matter and my side of it is really like whether or not i wish it to be this way is like a front facing side where the grain community, I mean we're talking about agriculture, right It's like not sexy, and there's definitely there's a moment right now that's happening where people are becoming more engaged in alternative forms of agriculture, and like, wait, what is agriculture?" and there's books and there are personalities that are talking about this and terminology that's becoming a little bit more familiar, but yeah, agriculture is like not something that the consumer Understands or has a relationship to anymore because we don't have family farms anymore. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: so I get to be the spokesperson and especially now that there are so many people who are interested in using certain kinds of flour, having a better understanding of grains, of heritage grains, of grains that are grown responsibly and sustainably and will nourish the body and also nourish the soil and will be more resilient as the planet continues to change. I can sort of point people towards resources and really just like act as a liaison and sort of angle myself as an advocate. And it's been really sort of exciting in a unfortunate way to watch the reaction within the community in this context you know, in, unfortunate and in that it has to happen at all, but it is just like, kind of like, see, we told you we were important. And there has been so many eyes on these farmers and bakers and small scale operations that have been working doggedly for decades and decades sometimes to essentially provide for this exact situation. It's all sort of under the guise of, we knew that the industrial system was not going to work. And we were just waiting to figure out when shit would hit the fan. And it has, and here we are.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of social media like all sort yeah. of like this you know it's i don't want to be on social media all the time so it's it's hard to you know be around for all of the live streams and the conversations but there's really it's a lot of conversations that are happening and it's a conversation between a brewer and a writer and a farmer and then you know anyone can kind of tune in to see and that conversation is not one that has been relevant to people outside of those pretty niche industries before, mm-hmm. and it is now. So my role in all of that is kind of hazy, but I, I get to be like the art school kid and make pictures that hopefully kind of capture people's attention for long enough that they stay and read the fine print, which has sort of always been the driving motive behind making sort of visual representations of bread that are a little bit unexpected. And really just like pushing viewership to these people and to research that's being done and to stockists for items that will allow consumers and producers to continue living in a way that is sustainable and resilient.
1: Yeah, it seems like a really interesting and important role to kind of translate that those conversations, and to also kind of a a visual sense that appeals to people who might have not even maybe paid attention before.
2: I'm lucky in that I get to often be—I mean, maybe not anymore because everyone's a bread maker—but there was a time where I was often like a first sort of entry point for some who like might not normally find themselves interested in food or in making food for themselves, because I got to like sneak in through the back door of. You know, a visual culture and we know that our world is processed and translated through images now more than any other time in history. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. And, you know, even like writing felt like it just kind of had a limit and has a limit. And you want to get people to the place where they're engaged enough in the topic to do all of the research that is put in front of them and um, I hope that I can just be one of the many stewards getting people to that place. Because that's yeah. like the world I was coming from.
1: Mm-hmm. And I want to kind of talk about the sort of art side and the aesthetic side and how you've kind of ended up developing that. And if there's, for example, there's a mention of like Bread and Puppet and other kind of activist artists, kind of people who emerge those kinds of worlds and talk about bread as well. And I wanted to kind of hear what are maybe some of your references and how you've developed kind of that aesthetic and that set of references?
2: Well, I'll say first off that my references are very, I'm pretty bad with references. I don't, I, it's, which is ridiculous because I studied art history and like I live in a world that is densely populated with artists and people engaged in visual culture. And I come from that, but I don't, Really have a a very close relationship to, like, I don't have art heroes. I wish I did, but they don't stick around in my brain. (laughs) Literature and language has always been a really strong driving force for me. And I find a lot of inspiration in form through ideas that are called from language. So, I tend to rely on references that exist outside of the medium I'm working in. And I think that that's a really helpful tool, at least for me, as far as, you know, when you recapitulate something, but in a different language, you just end up somewhere that never would have existed before. So, I think that my references do tend to exist outside of like a specific bread world though i get very excited anytime i find a marriage between art and bread bread and puppet really for me my relationship to to bread and puppet because they like like they serve bread at the performances but bread is not really integrated into the performance in any other way but when you listen to i believe his name is peter shulman um, i may be wrong the man who founded it when you listen to him talk you know, back in the seventies when he was first beginning the project, talk about what inspired him to name it, what he named it and serve sourdough at his performances. It is like very much directly in line with why I've been compelled by bread. So I think that that was kind of an early kindred spirit that I connected with and was very excited about. And, you know, I was even like looking through a couple of books last night and In three books in a row, I think there were, there are art books, but they're like monographs. And three books in a row, there was like one item that had bread in it or referenced bread. And so it's a lot of, it's the like widespread, this sort of spray of just the way bread can kind of wiggle its way into art practices and literary practices without being a focus point. So that kind of to, really underscore the diversity of context that it's relevant in and the universal quality that it has. So I tend to collect those just kind of to remind myself that it is everywhere and can represent so many things. And I think seeing a lot of that, those references in one place taken out of their context can be really powerful. So I try and pull as many as I can and I have them kind of stashed away and have been meaning to sort of place them all together in a kind of archive and probably will eventually. But I think that it's really useful to just sort of without having, even having commentary, you know, just be like, oh, and here's just a like very small sprinkling of all of the places where this item can be found represented by people who probably didn't even realize they were
1: representing it. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the way that your kind of website acts a little bit as, as that kind of cooking of like different sources and I feel like in that context almost bread is becomes like a sculptural work and it kind of has this way in which it presents stuff as very sculptural and that's kind of what struck me I think about your work too it's almost like I mean it could be made out of clay like it could and then it becomes something completely different mm-hmm. I think
2: it's a good narrator And in that way, like it's sculptural in that it is its own form and it can evolve and kind of always feel relevant, even when it is sort of, it is placed into a context where it feels unlikely, it automatically transforms into the metaphorical version of itself. And then it can be placed into a context that's incredibly straightforward and it becomes a different version of itself and it continues to kind of show itself to you, but it is very much its own narrative. And I think that as far as my website goes, it was really just meant to be originally as like a landing page for what was going to be a more specific project around mapping regional bread types. And because of that, it's been allowed to kind of just expand as a collage of all of these different reference points. And, you know, I get to sort of leave as the author of that and it replaces me. It was really always intended as a community project. And I realized I didn't need to be like publishing other people's words for it to be a communal project because the item itself is communal. You know, bread is made up of a community of billions of microorganisms. Mm-hmm. So we have that. And then we also have the idea that bread itself has been defined by billions of people in different communities all over the world for thousands of years. So there's no way that I can offer it, which is another reason why I found it incredible that there wasn't any consideration whatsoever of like me making bread look this way or taste this way or write about it this way, because people have been doing that forever. It's just that we live in such a visually driven culture that if you take a picture of it now, it can be deemed as yours or Mm -hmm. theirs. And what's so interesting to me about it is that we do not own it. We never have. And the only time in history where people have begun to disown it is when industry decided to claim it as theirs and adulterate it. As theirs. That's kind of when it started going to shit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, maybe as the closing thought, I wanted to open it up to has this moment and this kind of, again, intensity of attention, has it given rise to any, yeah, any exciting new openings for you that you're like, "Ah, wow, okay, cool, let's go there? Or like, I think your project about the dehydrated sourdough definitely felt like mapping of how
2: it traveled and oh you know yes the answer to that is yes also someone asked me the other day they're like so how long are you going to keep doing this because like you eventually need to make money from it right and like you can't just keep doing it forever and i was like i have no doubt that this will come back to me in spades you know Mm -hmm. in so many so many ways it already has For sure, but just, you know, being able to actually the fact that it worked and that so many people wanted it has already been like such a tremendous gift. And I really do mean that, but I am working with a software developer to make an app, which is not something I ever thought I would say (laughs) to make an app that will be very specifically. Intended for use by people who are making bread. So it'll be like a bread schedule, a bread timer that can be modified for personal use, but it will really kind of simplify the process of keeping track of your steps and your timing. And it's something that I've actually always wanted. So mm-hmm. I'm working with him on making that and I'm excited about it because it's not very exciting. It's super obvious and I feel like it's something that could be a great utility. And as much as I love abstraction and poetry in life right now, intentional, lucid, usable things feel very important. So that's, you know, kind of like, it's not going to save lives, but... I think it'll be something that will help folks continue to dedicate themselves to this process and hopefully gain a lot from it. And then we're also potentially talking about working together on mapping the spores, the spread of the sourdough. He and I, the same, the same developer. So those things will take place eventually. And then I am growing this tiny wheat field which is very exciting. Really, that was sort of in the works before all of this, but I'm currently living at the farm where the growing is happening, which would not have been the case otherwise. So I'm really able to see the process start to finish and check on it, you know, throughout the week and really have just like a more intimate understanding of what goes into growing these specific kinds of grains with regenerative farming methods. And then you know, hopefully be able to more thoroughly and sympathetically inform and recommend consumer interaction with these kinds of grains, Um, having a clearer idea of what farmers and millers and distributors are actually going through. And then I am really just continuing to work on some publication ideas that have been not on the back burner but kind of like growing and simmering for a number of years and the fact that the world is shut down means that i can't travel and i often have to travel a lot for work so i'm finally finding enough time in one place to really get a lot of that material together so i think that you know those will come to fruition faster than they might have otherwise
1: that's very, very exciting. Yeah. 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 It's like sometimes we're, you know, people who like, I consider myself pretty privileged to be in this position right now where I'm like, you know, obviously have like a home to be in and can continue to work or from that position and that kind of disclaimer, being able to think about these positive and kind of
2: yeah, I was having that, this conversation with a very good friend of mine who's also upstate and she's able to, you know, continue to do some, not all of her work, but some of her work upstate and how confusing the conversation is in trying to be hopeful when we're also recognizing how incredibly privileged we are to especially be like urban dwelling people who are living in the countryside with people that we care about and are supported by and support in turn and are inspired by certain elements of our surroundings and our relationships, even as they've changed in the last couple of months and to feel excited and how uncomfortable it can feel to be excited and hopeful and to Mm -hmm. also want to share the things that we find beautiful in our worlds right now. And I think that that's a difficult conversation to have in this moment. And I don't know if it's a necessary one. You know, I think that there are more necessary ones, but it's worth noting at least.
1: Yeah, it is a complicated and complex moment and, you know, a bunch of different things are firing at us. But I think, yeah, finding times for the urgent stuff, but also like some of this kind of nice stuff is also nice.
2: (laughs) Hope is urgent.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much, Lexi. That's uh, yeah, really, uh, thank you. really happy about this uh, conversation and uh,
2: thanks yeah, for being Thank you time. for following along and for getting in touch. I'm very I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk it out with somebody.
0: my conversation with lexi smith the founder of bread on earth you can find the project at bread onearth dot earth and even find recipes to start your own sourdough this was leticia Trandefier for radio never apart this episode was edited by dimitro st clair until next time